There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Uh, good morning, good day, top of it to y'all. Welcome back, Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 in Toronto. Jack Hartle in the studio with me. Well, he didn't produce this week's show, but he tends to produce the show. That was my job this week. He stayed home for a couple of days, took care of the kids. It's the modern age of employment, isn't it? Flex hours, flex work, and it's a good thing. Uh, i got a good show lined up for you. If you are a shareholder, and you probably are, that's why you're listening to Hi-Fi Radio, show about money. Sometimes finance, sometimes fashion, usually finance. But uh, we have a lawyer in the studio, Andrew Morganti. He represents investors. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. Uh, we're then going to follow, be follow up with uh, Michael Graham, one of our tech analysts. Amazon was out with great numbers this week. The world being Amazon. Michael Graham is going to talk about Amazon and also crypto, which has become... Well, it has become, what's the word, paralyzed, shall I say, as it swooshes down back to reality. And then we're going to end it off with a talk about oil with our good friend Rafi from Canoe Financial. Without further ado, my good friend Andrew Morganti, he is a lawyer who represents investors. Uh, his firm, Morgani.com, is the website. Andrew, I want to welcome you to Hi-Fi Radio. Thank you. Thank so, you. Uh, Full disclosure, I met you at Key, a place where I tend to eat once a week, a little sushi. i got to nourish myself. And uh, you said, hey, Wolf, that looks good. And so we began a conversation and asked what you did. And you told me that you represent investors. And so, again, as a portfolio manager, uh, I buy 30, 40, 50, 60 stocks for my clients. And every now and then, my clients get a notice in the mail that says uh, class action lawsuit, if you were a shareholder from this period to this period, please tell us how many shares you owned, when you owned it, submit it back to our firm uh, for you may be entitled to compensation. And I've always wondered how much compensation, because I had a few, one client uh, who had a lot of time on his hands actually go through the process of, of, of digging back three, four, five, six years to find out how many shares he owned, specific dates, what he paid for it, what he sold it for, gain or loss on the transaction, submit it. And six months later, got a check in the mail for 50 buck, once for 70 buck. And I said, is it worth it? How much time did you spend? He said, I spent probably three, four, five, six hours. Sometimes I scored, sometimes I didn't. Because Jack and I tend to advise to our clients, let it go. It's not worth it. You didn't have a big enough position to make it worth your time. But at Key, you told me perhaps otherwise. That's right. That's right. Um, well, first on an individual level, I've, I've had clients collect as much as 80000 Uh These settlements really depend upon when you purchase the shares during a relevant time period, mm -hmm. uh, they're typically referred to as a class period, class action, class period. Uh, more often not, it's the investors that purchase the shares prior to the public correction, that is prior to the stock tanking, mm -hmm. that recover the most in these type of settlements. Uh, what also influences this outcome is uh, how many investors actually file claims. If there's only one investor filing a claim, uh, there's a good chance that that particular investor is going to have a windfall, 100% of their losses. Whereas if you have more investors submitting claims, the the fund is diluted by that. Right. Now, so, so folks, it, 
If you're a shareholder of stocks, I'm sure you've received in the mail before that notice whereby uh, the company that you owned at one point in time, a class action lawsuit taking place, Andrew Morganti, who's a lawyer, he would represent the entire Canadian uh, shareholders, uh, i.e. the plaintiffs going up against the various defendants. And you've worked on big cases. Like you, 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 don't, you don't back down. You went up against Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch. You worked on the Valiant Pharmaceutical case, uh, Detour Gold, and even Volkswagen. Yeah? Yes, yes. yes. For, the, for the emission scandal, yeah? Yes. I drive a diesel. And it's emitting, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's serious. Volkswagen, German company, so international international representation we'd get from someone like you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, in fact, the, the focus of my law firm. We represent uh, really the, the, the investor that's focused on international stocks. Um, so we have Canadians. Our clients include Canadians that invest on the London Stock Exchange, the Frankfurt Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange. And then on the flip side, we have Germans that contact us because they've purchased shares on the Toronto Exchange of mining stocks. Jack brought that one up, eh? With Briex, yeah, Briex was a, a notorious scandal with uh, with Canadian. I think they were salting the mines way back in the late 90s, which was uh, turned out to be a scandal. And I think there was probably some lawsuits that followed. Yes. You, you didn't work in that case, did you, Andrew? No, I was still oh, in the United States great. back then. You were still in the United States. There's actually a great movie that I caught in an airplane uh, on, a, on a flight back home once, basically about just that. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, assaulting the mines, unbelievable. So Valiant's a little more recent story that you worked on. A lot of Canadians were hurt by that. A lot of the cases, I guess, that you work on are stories where shareholders have been hurt. Yes. Uh, can you walk us through that case? Well, the, the, all, all these cases are, are similar in the sense that during a relevant time period, whether it's six months, one year, six years, the company will release quarterly reports, and in those contain the MDNA management discussion analysis. And there's certain statements that are made, or there's certain statements that should have been made but are not. We call those omissions of material fact. In any event, it it those documents influence investors to buy or sell the stock. It makes up the, the, the investment proposition of the issuer here in the case of sure. Valiant. And uh, the, the MDNA may not disclose material facts. The investor relies on what is disclosed, buys the shares, and at some point in the future, either the company releases a public disclosure or a third party, for example, like the government, the, the OSC or the SEC, will release a statement about the company. And then that statement will seem to contradict prior statements, spook the market, and that's why you get the shares to crash. Unbelievable. Okay, we're speaking with Andrew Margani. He is a lawyer who represents investors. Uh, this is good stuff. Uh, we're going to pay some bills around here, my good friend, and we're going to get right back to you and talk about just that full disclosure on Hi-Fi Radio. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Well, welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 in Toronto. In the studio, we have Andrew Morganti. And, well, he fights the corpse, eh? And you win. Uh, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Valiant, Detour Gold, even Volkswagen, Das Auto. Yeah? Yeah. You have been uh, 
battling with. Uh, is, that, is that case put to bed? No, it's still uh, still going. In fact, for the shareholders, it's just now ramping up. It's taken some time, but uh, on Monday, we're going to be in court. I, I bought the 2004 diesel. I think the scandal began 2005 model. Uh, yet mine is emitting. That, that, that was before the e-test actually even had it then. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, Jack. So... Um, the the management discussion and analysis. I'll be I'll be transparent with you. I've never read one. As as a portfolio manager, I don't read the discussions. We have analysts that go through the minutia for us, and 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 they are the ones who help us comb out the the uh, the, 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 the yeah the material facts. But uh, so so uh, this is obviously a key cornerstone of what you do. Any kind of omission of what they perceived to be relevant at the time uh, it gives gives you uh, substantiated uh, facts to, to proceed with the case. Obviously. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so give us an example of, of when this has occurred, when it was victorious to to your outcome. Well, and if you get given particular case, I can say that like Volkswagen, for example. Well, in Volkswagen, I believe the the date was back in September in 2015. You had public corrections. The company released a statement saying that for some amount of time, we've realized we've been under investigation for the diesel issues. And the, the, the stock uh, corrected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the market, uh, rightfully so, got scared, didn't know the type of exposure was here, not to mention it didn't sell the product that it was selling it was. The stock tanked. And what we did was go through the semi-annual reports, and we also took the uh, investor, uh, pardon me, the um, research analyst uh, reports on Volkswagen mm-hmm. and said, okay, this is what the company said. During this time period, this is what research analysts took and, mm-hmm. and reported, and here we have a public correction. Here's the truth. There's a discrepancy here, and, and that's the basis under Canadian law that we can go to court for investors. Interesting. So, Andrew, when you have a company that uh, that uh, has some litigation coming towards it, do you typically see the market sell off in advance of? Do you think that there's a sniff that the market gets of this news, or is it typically litigation comes out, bad news, then the market sells off? So I just want to see if the market's kind of ahead of the game, if there's leaks, or if it's uh, if it all happens sort of at once. No, that's a, a great observation. More often not, it's you have a public correction and then the litigation. But what's interesting is occasionally you'll see a, a, a large uptick in volume before a public correction, <laughs> and then the news comes out. And then in my mind, I'm thinking, somebody knew. Sure. Yeah, because I was thinking the Equifax, because that that's what happened this summer, right? There's exactly. a lot of insider selling in advance of, then they come out with the scandal with the fact that there's lots of uh, lots of information floating around that probably shouldn't be, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. So, so my next question to you is, the activist shareholder in society has notoriously been the hedge funds. They're the ones who truly stand up, I think, for the little guy. And that's actually where shorting the market and trying to bring truth to the forefront is a good thing. A lot of people hate those who short. Jack and I really don't short because there's an unlimited loss proposition to us. So we just avoid the concept. But it, it serves a purpose. Um, so uh, in terms of just that, the hedge funds bringing these stories. Over, where does it come from? Because I spoke to this off air. Is it the investment community that, that brings forth these cases? Or is it the legal community, as I shall say, chasing ambulances looking for deals? <laughs> yeah, no, look, it's it, it's very complex. Because you got to make a living. There's nothing wrong with that. No, You're no, prospecting, no. I guess, eh, Jack? 
well, it, look, whether it's lawyers or uh, your your hedge fund guys, uh, they have MBAs, we have JDs. It takes a lot of time to do this type of work. And I, I view it as reverse engineering these public corrections. It's not chasing ambulances. If anything, it's financial engineering going back in time and seeing what yeah. was disclosed and why was there a discrepancy and why was this statement spooking the market? You know, who originates these files? It's that. It's the public correction. But occasionally, we do get contacts from various hedge funds saying, hey, you know, we've done this report on this. And did you recognize that the company's reporting this and it's doing business with company A, B, and C? But if you look at the MDNA of companies A, B, and C, they're saying they shut down that business. Hmm. So what is it? What's uh-huh. going on here? Either the market doesn't know or something. So, And then that's where the hedge funds will short. We have a lawyer in the, uh, in the studio right now, Andrew Margani. He represents investors if one of the companies you invested in did wrong, if they omitted some material facts, including some emissions, shall we say lies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he would represent you. Uh, so, so tell me something, because again... For, for an independent shop, you represent a lot of Canadian shareholders. Uh, so how, how big of a stake do you have in this business of representing investors? Market share, in other words, what do we get at here? Okay, well, I, I, I believe as of the end of 2017, my firm uh, had what we call carriage, or the lead counsel of approximately one-third of the shareholder litigation, class action litigation across Canada. So you've represented one-third of the volume of Canadian shareholder litigation. We are. We currently are right now. We currently are. That's significant. And you're American to boot. I am an American. Wow. A little, little NAFTA going on here? A little free trade coming up and uh, yes. taking some of our legal business? Trump, pay attention. <laughs> All right. Andrew Morgani uh, represents investors in the studio. If you want to sue one of the companies you invested in, call Andrew Morgani. Uh, Morganti. Dot com. Very easy to find. Uh, your office is what, One Young Street? I have two offices, one in Detroit, Michigan, the other one right at One Young in one Toronto. Young, near the old Toronto Start Building. That's right. Yep, where they no longer publish papers, which is a good thing. They shouldn't like, publish them up in Vaughan. Coming up next, we're going to talk tech with Michael Graham, Amazon, crypto, and why not throw some Google in while we're at it right after this. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Trash it, change it, mail, upgrade it, charge it, point it, zoom it, press it, snap it, work it, quick, erase it, write it, cut it, paste it, save it, load it, check it, quick, rewrite it, plug it, play it, burn it, rip it, drag it, drop it, zip, unzip it, lock it, fill it, call it, find it, view it, code it, jump, unlock it, surf it. Okay, enough of that. Daft Punk. Hey, Michael Graham. Graham's on the line, tech analyst, Canaccord Genuity. Michael Graham, a pleasure to have you back on Hi-Fi Radio. Yeah, thank you, Wolfgang. Happy to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, pleasure. So, busy week for you, Michael. Uh, so, we're going to be firing a lot of questions at you. And again, you're our crypto guy as well. So, in the land of tech, lots of companies reported this week that you cover uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook. So, let's get the highlights first and foremost of those three tech giants, the the, the FANG uh, components, and how they perform. Yeah, um, you know, pretty well all around. Uh, you know, with with the with the exception of Google, really. Um, 
so you, so you know well the other the first fang component was netflix uh a, a bit ago and they had a great quarter and you saw the stock react to that and that was just subscriber growth was awesome uh you know facebook reported earlier in the week and there you just have the revenue model really firing on all cylinders and the company's going to great lengths to preserve the user experience, make sure there aren't too many ads, make sure the user experience is safe. So that should extend that growth period for a while. Uh, Amazon had probably the best quarter I've seen in, in at least two years. Um, you know, from them, uh, everything was just firing on all cylinders. Revenue was great. AWS uh, web services was great. And um, uh, very importantly, their domestic operating margin was 4.5%. That was the highest level in two years. Um, so that, you know, was a great one. Google was the one where, um, you know, we've been sort of cautious on this one heading into the last couple of quarters. We think the revenue is going really well, but um, higher, um, the higher growth revenue streams are the lowest margins. So we're seeing a lot of gross margin pressure at Google. That's why the stock's off a little bit today, and we think that's going to continue. Hmm. So why don't we start with Facebook? Because uh, that was a very interesting one. Revenue was up, what, 61%? Is that correct? Or was profit? Earnings. Earnings were up 61% at Facebook. Uh, and after hours trading, after the company reported, due to that user experience not, or engagement dropping, time spent listening back in radio days, my good friend, uh, stock was selling in the after hours down, what, 4%? And then I guess conference call kicked in, Michael, or something took place, and I guess the, the user experience wasn't such a, a big deal. Stock and the regular day following earnings actually, I think, closed up on the session. Is that correct? It did. I mean, there were a couple things there. You know, one was that, yeah, the, the, the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, started talking about, um, he reiterated something that he put out in a blog post heading into the quarter, which was that, um, you know, time spent might drift down a little bit because Facebook was going to try to show better content but less, you know, kind of um, uh, time waster videos. And, um, and then, you know, later on, and that's what helped to push the stock down. Later on in the call, the CFO came on and gave some, some guidance points for the coming year. And what he basically said is revenue, you know, was going to be fine. And um, the interpretation was that what Mark Zuckerberg was talking about might trim down on user time spent a little bit, but um, it's not going to hurt their relationship with advertisers, and the ad revenue would be fine. So uh, I think that's what got the stock going again, and you know, it makes total sense uh, to us. Let me ask you something else now, thematically or holistically or morally about this company, Facebook. Lots of headlines right now about children and safety um, and um, the, the psychological impact and the addictiveness of Facebook. What's going on there? And, and They're actually targeting kids, I think, are they not, with one of their new platforms? I don't know. Talk to us, Michael. Like, well, what's the deal with all of this? You know, I, I, I think you, you take, take it up a step, you know, besides just, just kids, you know, is... The question is, you know, is Facebook good for people or not? Um, and I think, you know, that's the answer to that question is the same answer to the question, is technology good for people or not? Um, you know, are we better off as farmers without uh, plows? Uh, or are we better off, you know, with television sets and social media and our smartphones? And, um, you know, I'm not going to try to answer that question, but, you know, what, what Facebook is trying to do is in, within the context of, um, you know, the te today's technology environment, try to make sure that, um, that the user experience is as healthy as it can be. So they're doing things like trying to uh, surface content in, in your news feed that makes people feel good. They're doing a lot of A-B testing on, you know, this type of content makes you feel good. This type of content makes you feel jealous. This type of content makes you feel sad. 
and they're trying to kind of work all that out to do their best to make Facebook, you know, uh, be a positive force for people. So, Michael, uh, historically, advertisers haven't been able to t- target uh, children. Uh, are there any safeguards uh, on the digital media or uh, through the Internet that, that has those same types of controls? And is Facebook obviously uh, respecting those, I guess? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I, I think advertisers um, can, can target children. Um, you know, just for certain products. Um, you know, they they can't. Um, but if you you know look at Nickelodeon or any of the kids networks, and they you know have television advertisements for you know kids products or for family products that the that the that the the company wants to try to get the parents to buy. You know, for the kids. Like, um, you know, and I think Facebook definitely um, has that as well, but. Uh, I think what the company said um, yesterday is that they are focused on trying to make sure that they're being a good citizen and that, um, you know, if they are uh, serving ads to kids. I mean, first of all, you're supposed to be, I think, the age is 13 or 14 to even be on Facebook in the first place. Now, you know, that's not always uh, the case. But, um, but then, you know, if they are targeting ads to kids, that, um, that they're, you know, the right kinds of ads that, uh, that aren't bad for kids. And, of course, we can, then we have this question, well, what's good for kids and what's bad for kids? Are video games bad for kids and all that stuff? And, again, you know, not really my place to answer, but yeah. I think that what Facebook has said is we're trying to be a good citizen. You know, you know it's amazing, Michael. I, I swear to God, in, in the 70s when I was a little child watching cartoons on Saturday, McGrimmis would come on and, and, and this whole fairy tale around McDonald's came on and I hopped on a bus and took it blocks. I, I was I was nine years old by myself and took the bus to McDonald's to get my little burgers and my fries because, well, McGrimmis was there. Uh, but it really, really, really worked. Mind you, the road runner influenced me as well. Look, we're on with the line here with Michael Graham tech analyst we're going to be talking about amazon and uh google and cryptocurrency and the crypto sell-off right after this listen we're going to take a break but when we come back more money talk you're listening to hi-fi radio from global news radio 640 toronto Welcome back, Hi-Fi Radio. Mike Graham on the line, Canaccord Genuity's tech analyst, the man who covers Google and Amazon and eBay, Facebook, Netflix, Pandora, PayPal, Twitter, anything tech. Well, Michael Graham knows he knows it really, really well. So, uh, Michael, let's uh, let's go move on to Amazon. Uh, company made what about two billion dollars in profit? Yeah, uh, you know, really fantastic, you know, set of numbers from them. Um, uh, clearly, you know, they, they have this concept called the Amazon Prime flywheel. And what it basically means is, uh, yes, we have a lot of great things on our, on our website for, you know, decent prices, not the lowest prices, but decent prices. Uh, but then we also have, you know, fast free shipping. Uh, and then we have a whole bunch of other services like uh, um, movies, music, the ability to order groceries, um, and, uh, and, they, and they really just sort of layer in all this stuff, and it locks households in uh, to the company. And what we're seeing is that um, both domestically and internationally in, in Europe, but also places like India, um, they're, they're just really you know, having a lot of growth and a lot of benefit from that strategy. So um, it was really you know, a, a great quarter from them. Well, you know, it's amazing because the burning question amongst 20 
rural places on the planet is who's going to get the next Amazon head office or, or headquarters or warehouse. And I read a story because I do a radio show out in Kelowna, BC, and they sent me a story. I think it was from Atlantic Canada. And it was a very, I'd say, negative story on Amazon in, t- in terms of how they treat employees uh, and how they become so dominant, but quite pushy. And they, they say, you know, after a two-year period less a day, the employees become a member of the walking dead because they have a high pro- probability of being fired because they don't want their options to be vested. So I'm going to throw it back to you, Michael. Have you actually been to any of the Amazon warehouses and do you have any comments about how they treat their employees in a world of rising minimum wage? You know, I've been to several different Amazon places, including the headquarters, including a fulfillment center. Uh, you know, um, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't <laughs> noticed, I, mean, I haven't seen a, a, a big enough sample to be able to, you know, to judge, but um, I do know that um, Amazon's HR policy has come under fire in the past because um, they they really are sort of uh, uh, ruthless about trying to um, hire you know the best people that they can. They I know the people that work there work some awfully long hours. Um, They're not predetermined hours of, apparently according to the they, they didn't say they weren't predetermined. You didn't know how many hours you're going to work in a week, which is tough to budget. Yeah, yeah, of course it's tough to budget, and you know um, I, I I don't really know uh, you know too many details about that. I I know that. Um, you know, they've had these bar raisers. That this is probably not happening in the fulfillment centers, but in the rest of the company where, um, you know, there are like a, a few designated, quote-unquote, bar raisers that, um, that can basically, you know, decide if, an, if a new employee candidate is, you know, going to be raising the bar for the whole company. Um, and if not, then they can be vetoed. And oh. you know, there's some other things I think about the HR policy that have come under fire, you know, over the years. But I think any of the successful tech companies would, would have that too. I mean, these companies get big. I mean, you look at how big, you know, Fang plus Apple is, you know, in the in the economy and in the stock market. They're just, you know, dominating. Yeah, we have about two minutes here, so we, we have to run finish clear. Michael Graham, tech analyst with Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Uh, Jack has a couple of questions here for you on cryptocurrency. Yeah, just with the start of the year, obviously there's a lot of hype uh, heading into the end of last year uh, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, Sort of coming back to earth now. All these names. What's your uh, what's your views and what what are your thoughts on the experience that investors have had uh, in the last little ride? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah it's, it's really yeah, it's a great question. I mean, how you feeling now? <laughs> what we saw is uh, well, well, we we, we we have this chart that I like to show, and basically what happens are you know all the Bitcoin moves from one from a dollar up to ten uh, almost twenty thousand dollars in December. Uh, you know, were like a bunch of were long periods of sideways, and then you know, followed by a couple of months of just dramatic increases. And um, and I think we're going to continue to see that. You know, Bitcoin got to almost twenty thousand in December. It started selling off for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, number one, it's just super inherently volatile. Number two, you had increased regulation in places like China and South Korea. Uh, you had some major exchanges go down under the you know weight of all the transaction volume for a while. So just a lot of things lining up to kind of start to push to push the whole asset class back down. Um, we uh, explicitly do not set price targets for the crypto assets like we do for the stocks. <laughs> How can you? you know, You're smart. Yeah, <laughs> Very smart. But, um, but we did put out a piece um, in January called uh, Bitcoin Outlook, and we used a, a tailwinds and headwinds framework mm-hmm. uh, where we laid out all the things that could hurt Bitcoin, all the things that could help Bitcoin in 2018. And we came down on the side of the headwinds were more power, or the tailwinds were more powerful than the headwinds. So I encourage you to read that. But um, the tailwinds more powerful than the headwinds. Uh, I, I believe so. Um, you know, one of the big tailwinds we see for Bitcoin 
and for the whole asset class, but especially for Bitcoin, is institutional investors starting to get involved. You've got, you know, futures now trading mm-hmm. uh, on the CME and CBOE, and um, uh, you've got custody uh, services being developed for institutional investors. So, you know, we think that they're going to be getting exposure. There's a very, um, you know, there's a very strong case to be made that crypto assets, when added to a portfolio of other assets, it's extremely non-correlated. So um, it can, you know, raise the returns and lower the risk of a portfolio. And we think institutions are going to want access to that. Isn't it's, that I interesting? Say it's certainly become a lot more commonly accepted the last, well, 2017 was the year of crypto. Hopefully it doesn't uh, completely implode in 2018, but uh, it's definitely more in the mainstream no, now. No, it's only sure. down 56% to the start of the year. That's not too <laughs> bad. Oh, yeah, reduce some risk, eh? Michael Graham, you're a good fella. I always appreciate having you on Hi-Fi Radio. Michael Graham, tech analyst with Canaccord Genuity. Coming up next, we're going to talk oil, take a trip to Calgary and speak to one of the finest in the patch, Rafi with Canoe Financial right after this. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? Come on back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Come and listen to my story about a man named Chad. A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. Yummy. Hi-Fi Radio. Welcome back. Wolfgang Klein, your host. Jack Hartle, your producer of the show of finance, where we talk about stocks and bonds and oil and cryptocurrency and tech and you name it, we get it onto the show, Hi-Fi Radio. A show for everybody, shall I say. Rafi is on the line. Rafi Tamazian, who is amazing when it comes to oil, but I know you want to get off the air because you want to do a little skiing today, so we're going to be brief with you, my good friend. Okay, Rafi, and welcome back. Thanks, dude. Appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> yes, you're with Canoe Financial. You are our oil guy. Uh, rather than us picking a bunch of oil stocks, we own a little Suncor. We own a bit of the index, but we like to give you some of the money because you're active and you take a North American view, I hope. So uh, where are you at? Are you liking the Canadian patch? The, the pipelines, for example, look awful. Trans-Canada Pipeline making new lows. Enbridge getting no love. Uh, Suncor technically not looking so good. Uh, once again, it's a tough patch in Calgary. Uh, so how are you managing my client's oil money, Rafi? Well, you know, it, it's, it, you're, it, is, it is awful. Canada's awful. Canada's a terrible place for energy. We've, uh, we've kind of felt that way since November of 16 when the election happened and Trump got in. And he was really, uh, he, he was very pro-energy and he had energy policy that was pr- productive. We had negative energy policy and funds have flown out of Canada and we've talked about this on your show before. And so, um, you know, today, if you are just starting to make that adjustment, it might be a little too late. So our funds are basically uh, 25 or 30% of the funds are out in Canada, uh, primarily in the U S uh, basins. We have about 25% of our holdings are Canadian companies with U S assets. Mm-hmm. So that takes you over 50% not exposed in Canada. And then we, we have about 10% private equity. So it leaves only about 40% focused in Canada. And, you know, to your point about pipes, if you're, if you're stuck in Canada with a commodity that's being backed up into the country, then the commodity price is sagging dramatically. What, what do you mean by that? Because I, I, know, I know what you mean by that, but I want to explain to the audience what you mean by that because I want you to tie this into, explain to us the differentials and what that means. Yeah. 
Exactly. So Canada does not use all of the oil or gas it produces. We need to find buyers outside of Canada. <laughs> so that means we've got to get it to them. And if we can't get it to them, then it stays here. And if it stays here, then we have an oversupply, and our supply, our price starts to go down relative to what the global price is, and that creates that differential. So because of this talk that everybody listens to about pipelines on and on in nausea and this complaints by, uh, by the oil companies that we're not building enough, aboriginals that they don't want it on their land, environmentalists that they don't want it on their land, regulators fighting it. And what that's created is this debate with no pipe. And the producers kept producing, and now we, have, we sell our product at a much lower price than the world price. And uh, all those people that own pipe stocks thinking that they're secure in them well, traditionally that's been the case, but now your pipe stocks are devaluing because we're getting, there's no cash flow issues. I think that's a situation, unfortunately, of just a valuation decompression. We have Rafi on the line. He works for Canoe Financial. He is our oil manager, Rafi Tamazian, just a very, very smart oil investor. So uh, in terms of pipes, uh, again, I look back to Trap that was once a widow and orphan stock. It was a dividend payer and income stock. Same with Enbridge. Uh, do you see more downside to these names? Well, the good thing about those two companies is they're going to have some resiliency at some point because of their they made very, very huge strides to start buying assets in the U.S. over the last three, four years. Right. And that will eventually start to help them out. But this this pressure is more of a valuation compression in Canada, and who knows how long that can last. Um, Trudeau made some an aggressive statement yesterday on uh, Kinder Morgan with BC, saying they won't tolerate this, uh, this. It's inexcusable what they're saying, and they can't stop us from moving heavy oil through their province. That's a productive statement to make, but it might be too little too late for a while. So... You know, our funds aren't going to stay that way. We, we, we moved outside of Canada to keep, uh, uh, we, we're trying to make sure that, uh, we, I think the safe bet is to keep global, global exposure and dial down your Canadian exposure for a while. Because the fix, the, fil- the fix is actually an intermediate term fix now. It's no longer short term. The production's here. The pipes will take years to build. <laughs> so there's no other way to remove it. So uh, you've got to focus on, uh, commodities that can be moved in Canada, and that's light, sweet, crude, and condensate. That's it. That's it. But can you, you can, can you move outside of Canada, or just I mean, so excuse me, beyond North America? Yeah. So we also, you know, two of our largest holdings, and it had a lot to do with the work we did over last summer on LNG. I mean, Canada may not be an LNG, but the global market is, and BP and and Shell are huge in that industry. Liquefied so, natural gas. Yeah, liquid moving gas through another phase through liquefying it yeah and, hey, yeah uh, sir well, what is the chemistry how do you liquefy natural gas do you have to cool it yep hey. it's just like anything you slow it down right and it, it cools and anything you slow down and it hardens so to, to be simple about it and so it's just um the the, the you know we, we recent as recently as last week had uh an lng um ship come in from europe into the the boston harbor during that cold spell, they, they actually couldn't even get gas, enough gas to Boston and needed uh, a, a, a liquefied ship from, uh, from Europe 
into their country. So. And so then what in Boston they had a process to reverse the slowing down of they heated the natural gas up and took it back into a gas form is what they do, I guess. Yeah, there are there are still uh, facilities that can be intakes is how they refer intakes, to it. Intakes, right. But but they do it, it is predominantly the US is predominantly gonna be an offtake leaving the the, the the continent and going to other places. We want to be off-takes. We want to be able to take our gas and move it out. Interesting. And that is the next big, big thing is we're going to hear from Shell imminently here whether they're going to go ahead with LNG Canada. That will be an enormous uh, plus for us if we can get through it. And I'm sure they're, I mean, I'd be shocked if they're not already talking to the federal government about this. And I'd be equally shocked if Trudeau is not seriously thinking about approving it. Let's, let's talk more about this. Uh, Rafi Tamazian, uh, Energy uh, Portfolio Manager with uh, Canoe Financial on Hi-Fi Radio right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Born to be a roughneck I'll never amount to nothing Pulling keys and playing pipes Yes, it is. This is Hi-Fi Radio. It's a radio show. It's light labor. Hey, Jack, good and easy. You enjoy doing this, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right on a Saturday morning. Yep. No, I know, Raph, you want to go ski. What's the snow like out in Calgary? It's minus 20 in Calgary, but I'm about two hours. I'm two hours south of there in Fernie, Columbia. Steep and deep. It snowed 24 centimeters last night, and it is two degrees below. Are they mourning the loss of Warren Miller? Pardon me? Are they mourning the loss of Warren Miller? He shot a lot yeah, of film. at. No, you know, I yeah? think most of the kids around here don't know who Warren Miller is. So, I, Yeah, uh, but you and I aren't kids, right? We're, we're old guys. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's, talk, let's, let's talk about energy just as before you get to energize on your skis and, yeah, keep it loose and uh, keep them pointed downhill. Um, <laughs> batteries, coal, oil, nat gas. Four ways yep. to play it. What's the future, and, and how can you make money? Which category you make the most money in? I don't think it's I don't think it's coal. Trump does. Yeah, it's you know you, from a risk perspective, we're 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 decades away from uh, how you and I would invest in batteries um, in terms of it being mainstream. This that's going to be a very volatile place. Coal is going to be volatile as it goes away, and that leaves you with uh, uh, there, there has to be some form of commodity that bridges the gap between this dirty place we're in, call it, or this big carbon footprint and the light carbon footprint we're going to be in 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And what, what has kind of been ignored throughout this period, and it's so unfortunate because Canada is just robust in it, is natural gas. Yeah, it's beautiful that stuff. Is, that is the key to bridge the gap between high carbon footprint and low carbon footprint while we find these alternative and renewable fuels. So, so, no, no, so, Raf, sorry, Rafi, so I want to interject you. I apologize. So let's talk about liquefying the natural gas. I guess if we do that, we have one promise we have to lean on to help us export it to the world, correct? And that's British Columbia. Uh, correct, but not completely. Uh, we have a small investment, for instance, in a company that has the approvals both provincially and federally to move uh, LNG off the East Coast. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's called Paraday. And uh, they re- just recently did a RTO of a Quebec gas asset company. Uh, and they are, you know, a, a struggling entrepreneurial little LNG business that's got to find gas on the East Coast to fill its um, 
you know, off takes to move to Europe. If, so, but the piece de resistance is obviously the West Coast. Right. And again, if you're just tuning in, uh, we have Rafi Tamazian on on the line with us. He is Canoe Energy's uh, lead portfolio manager who understands how to invest money effectively and efficiently in oil and nat gas and alternatives as well. Just last year there, Rafi, you were talking about uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, Petronas canceled a, a, a massive project. I think it was over $30 billion. Uh, and that mm. was just because, I guess, of politics, uh, because of unfriendly environment, business environment out in BC. Uh, you mentioned Shell looking at doing a, a facility. What's uh, what's gonna what has changed? I guess since that period of time. Yeah, LNG Canada is is the project, and actually Petronas uh, canceled their project. They purchased their assets in 2011 and just went through. Uh, you know, I mean, the places these people deal usually are places where they're worried about guns, not regulations. And they were just. <laughs> They were absolutely rolling their eyes, so they pulled the plug. <laughs> they have now subsequently, although not officially, uh, teamed up with Shell here. So I think, we believe, that they are engaged in this project with Shell for, to the tune of 15% as well. Because they've, got, they've all got this gas. Shell has massive gas assets in northeast BC, as does Petronas. And they're 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 basically stranded now. Yeah. So how much so, do they get for like if they sell a BTU of gas here in Canada? What do they receive for it versus having it uh, trans to, transformed into LNG and shipped over to Europe? Yeah. So that's a tough question to kind of nail down because we they're two different uh, measurements that they use. Mm-hmm. But what happened? The way to say that is it, it uh, at beginning of 2017. Shell said that the crossover between global oversupply and demand for LNG will happen in 2029. By the end of 2017, the work they had done with all the countries that they've been working with, they moved that crossover to 2022. And that means that building a facility in Canada now suddenly became more viable. Because if, if the price starts to get supported by 2022, that's about the time frame it'll take to build this facility and they'll be right in the crossover point, and they can see the economics happening. So, um, you know, we sell our gas for $2.5 in MCF, give or take, and it moves around. In, in the Far East, the price goes between 7 and $15 in MCF. In the Far East? Yeah. Wow. In terms of the demand. So how can we capture that, you know, through, you know, managing the costs and the build-out of this equipment? It's It's a very, very... Uh, it's a game for the big boys, you know, definitely. Interesting. How, how cap- big, boys and, big boys and big girls, I better say. Yeah. How, how, how capital intensive is an LNG facility? What would it cost to build one of those? It can vary dramatically, but, you know, the facility itself, you can be at uh, 10 to $20 billion. Wow. You're, you're in for, oh, and, and massive engineering and procurement, um, jobs for construction, jobs after the fact, pipelines to be built. Um, new hope for gas. It would, I mean, the it would, it would be the first time in four years that global markets would open their eyes and say, Canada, economic growth, really? Okay. So, 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 what's the cost to actually uh, to produce the LNG to turn natural gas into LNG and then to ship it to the Far East? You said yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Good question. Well, so it, it, it's kind of funny. I, it, it's almost it. it Really, it's not a number that you can quantify. The, the way you can look at it is these guys would negotiate contracts with 
the Far East. So, in, for instance, this company, Paraday, I was talking about, they're, they're, saying, they're finding the buyer, and they want to find the, the, the buyer, and they have to find the seller of gas. So they've got to get the feedstock, and then they've got to get the buyer, huh. and then they sit and negotiate a, a rate. And that rate is fixed for a long period of time so that you, you have a fairly decent idea mm-hmm. of your return on your invested capital because you have these long-standing yeah. 10- or 20-year contracts. You're, you're typically selling it to utilities. So a purchase power agreement, in other words, basically, yeah. It's like a PPA, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the largest utility in Europe, this, I think it's called OMV or something in Germany, they're the ones that are desperate to get a, a contract with a Canadian Oh, I bet uh, you yeah, know the Europeans are always held ransom for their not gas by the Russians year in, year out when they get a cold spell. Right, yeah. Look, so Rafi, I'd love to. Sorry, Rafi, in the interest of time, we have to let you yeah. go. You want to go skiing, anyways. So, uh, dude, point them downhill, have some fun. And uh, hey, why not get yourself into the chalet for a little hot cocoa at the end of the day? Rafi Tamazian, great oil guy, Canoe Financial, always a pleasure to have you with us on Hi Fire Radio. That's it for this week's show, folks. We're going to be back next week. Jack Hartle and, of course, Moal C. Wolfgang Klein, an absolute pleasure having you with us every Saturday morning. All the best. Listening to Hi Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.